Right, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 for the bulk of our time. We'll flip over to Ephesians 5 as well. Uh, I think that may be on 978. I forgot to look it up, but Genesis 2 is on page 2, so you can find that one in the Bible around you pretty easily. When I was a sophomore in high school at Cartersville High School down in Georgia, go Kings, and so that's for my brother and sister-in-law who are here today, uh, also CHS grads. Um, but when I was a sophomore, I took a class called Drafting. And this was, we had no AutoCAD, this was old school, so we had, you know, a, a drawing pad, had a T-square, protractors, triangles, and so we did the whole, I mean, the whole nine yards, and across the semester, we had to draw blueprints of just a basic ranch-style house, uh, multiple pages, so you had to have the footers in there, you had to have uh, walls, uh, the way the, the rafters came onto the walls and the, the roof and all of that, so a lot of drawing and all of that, and then... A couple of years ago, when we built uh, this building, phase one of a probable three-phase project, we've got two more big buildings going that way uh, to build uh, as part of the master plan. But when we started going through all the, you know, with the architect, all the blueprints, all of that uh, started to kind of come back to me, and I remembered, you know, a little bit about it, and it helped me at least uh, act like I somewhat had an idea of what I was talking about, though I really didn't. I, uh-huh, that sounds great, wonderful, that's a good idea. That was just kind of my modus operandi. But the thing about blueprints is that they don't tell you why you're building what you're building. They just tell you what to build, right? And so that's why last week when we started this series on marriage, we took the time to talk about the, the why, right? What is the purpose and what is the meaning of marriage? And we talked about the fact that that God designed marriage not solely, but ultimately to reflect his glory in the gospel. And so that's why marriage means so much more than just our own personal happiness. We are drawing a picture of Christ's love for the church in how we live out our marriages as believers. And so that's why there's a whole lot more to it than just, you know, our own happiness. We are saying something about God. We're making a theological statement about God. All right. And so last week was very much the why of marriage. But today is very much the, the what. Okay. It's the blueprints. And we'll get into some specifics over the next three weeks of uh, parenting and conflict and friendship and sex. But today is the big blueprint, the what of marriage. And we're going to see that blueprint Stated is stated four times the exact same wording four times throughout Scripture. All right, the exact some of it's before sin ever entered the world, and some of it's after the fall happened when sin entered the world. So it's showing us that this is God's once for all time blueprint of marriage. And we're going to see the first one in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We looked at it a little bit last week, but we'll look a little more in depth at it this week. So join me there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, page 2 in the Bibles around you. Uh, grab one of those if you don't have your Bible with you and take one of those if you do not own a Bible. It's our gift. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so this is God's blueprint. Okay, this is God's blueprint of marriage. And it breaks down into three pretty distinguishable categories that you can see there. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So that's what we're going to that's going to be number one for us this morning. Secondly, he shall hold fast to his wife or cleave. That's another translation. Uh, I think maybe the King James and they shall become one flesh. And so that's how we're going to break it down this morning. Those three things. Leave your parents, cleave to your spouse and become one flesh. And so we'll, let's just dive into it and do a little bit of work here. Number one, leave your father and your mother. Okay, leave your father and your mother and you leave them emotionally, financially and geographically. Now, Moses is let's make sure we understand what Moses is not telling us first. Moses is not telling us to abandon our parents. We are called to honor our father and mother. Okay, so this is not a call to abandonment. This is also Moses is not telling us that we have to live like hundreds of miles away from our parents because it's possible to live on the other side of the earth but still not have left your parents. Because what the primary idea here is, and there's financial stuff and there's geographic stuff, but the primary idea here is that your parents, once you become married, are no longer emotionally the first place in your life. And they're not even a close second. They are a distant second. And if you've got kids, they are a distant third. Like the moment you say, I do, the moment that happens, so I was at a wedding yesterday, Mike um, and Brittany got married yesterday. The moment that they said, I do, their relationship with their parents should, and all of ours should, if you're married, when you said, I do, drastically change. Drastically change. And you no longer look to your parents for affection or approval like you're not trying to make them proud anymore you're trying to make your spouse proud you look for affection you look for approval in your spouse not from your parents now you value and hold at a much higher position the opinions desires and dreams of your spouse not your parents like i've got pretty good in-laws but we've we've had our time I've got pretty good parents, but we've had our time as well. And Sarah and I, very early on in our marriage, had to make it abundantly clear to both sides, we love you, and we value you, and we appreciate you, and we are so thankful for you. And we want to be around you and we want to learn from you. You know so much more than we do. And we want to be close to you. But if there's ever a decision where it's either you, mom and dad, or my spouse, it's going to be my spouse every single time. And you need to know that. And we love you but they win always. We leave our parents and we cleave to our spouse. And parents, I know that's hard to hear. I know that that's hard to hear. I've, you know, got, if my oldest gets married when I did, that's only 11 years away. And at this point in my life, I cannot imagine allowing our relationship to so dramatically shift for some punk boy 
who wants to marry my daughter. And I've got to trust him to guard and protect her heart. That's not going to be easy. But I know that day's coming. And I'm praying that before it comes, I'll get to know this guy and he won't be a punk kid. He will be a godly man that I am glad to give my daughter to in marriage. But I know that day's coming. And so, parents, our goal has to be to prepare our kids to leave, not prepare them to stay. We are preparing them to leave. Psalm 27 speaks of our children as arrows. Arrows are meant to be fired, not stay in the quiver. We're to launch them off into life. And so don't wrap your life around them and just do everything for them so that you emotionally handicap them. And when they get, when, when, when they get married, all right, like for me, I, I know I'm going to have to trust that punk kid. I'm going to have to let him fail and not come sweeping in like super dad to save the day. Though that's what I want to do. Sarah and I can't try to run their lives. We're there for advice if they ask. Not just offering it up. Do with it. I know you're an idiot. Punk kid, listen to me. If they ask. And being real with you, a hundred this is not a hundred percent, but what I find through counseling a lot of times is the biggest issues is often between mamas not letting their boys leave, trying to hang on to the boys, and daddies trying to hang on to their daughters. That's what I find most often. And so, daughter, wife, your husband is now your number one hero, not your daddy. Daddy can still be your hero. Girls, I still want to be your hero. But not number one. Not number two. There's like a snicker there. I don't know about that. What was that? But daughters, wives, your husband is your number one hero, not your daddy anymore. And why? And husbands, your wives, and not your mama, is your best friend and your closest confidant, not, not your mom. All right? And so, again, we do not abandon our parents, okay? Emphasis, like, we, we, we emphasis on we, honor them, both. Spouses, honor them, all right? So don't abandon them, but the relationship is dramatically changed. This is what leaving is all about. And so for those of you who are married, let's just do a little soul searching real quick and ask some questions. Have you left your parents? Have you? Have you? Even if they're dead, it's possible to not have left them. They're, they emotionally still control much of what you did or maybe you had really awful parents and you could not wait to physically get away from them but still the weight of that still has tentacles back and you haven't left them that still play have you left your parents and how would your spouse answer that question about you what would they say 
And if it's different, what does that mean? And why is that? Parents, are you making it easy for your kids to leave? Or are you so emotionally empty without them that you're trying to hang on to them because you love your emotional stability more than you love them? These are questions to ponder. Because this is God's blueprint. And none of us get it right perfectly. None of us get it right perfectly. And there's grace and there's mercy from our loving Lord when we miss the ideal. But this is the ideal. This is the blueprint. But interlaced right with this leaving is this idea of, of cleaving. And so let's talk about that. This idea, uh, as the ESV puts it here, of holding fast. All right? Holding fast. Being, you know, together. Like, you, this is it. Once you say, I do, I do you're, you're together now. There's, there's no other option. So strike divorce from your vocabulary. All right? It doesn't exist. That word is out. You've got no little secret backup plan in your mind that you never tell anybody, but it's just if it gets really bad, then I'll just get out. No, no, no. Cleaving means this is it. This is it. See, our, our culture views love and marriage. We've gotten it completely like uh, backwards, and we've gotten to this place where we view love as purely emotive. And so it can be fallen into or out of depending really on how happy the other person is making us. And so really, we don't love the other person. We love us. That's what we love. We love ourselves. And our love for others is conditioned on what they do for us. So if they're not loving us enough, if they're not doing enough, then I'm done with you. You're not doing enough for me. That's not love. That's loving yourself. Love is not you make me happy so I love you. That's you loving you. That's not you loving someone else. And not only is it backwards, but it's also a recipe for disaster. I mean, if what you love. All right. If what love is, is you making me happy, then I'm never going to be honest and open with you and let you see my weaknesses because if you see my weaknesses you're not going to like that like you see how this is you're never going to be free you're never going to be open you're always going to feel closet you're going to always have walls up so that they cannot see your weaknesses if they see your weaknesses they might want out love is actually way more of a choice than it is a feeling my feelings are there, right? I've got a great affections for my wife. But our affections, you know, they, they wax and wane. And they're stronger at times and they're weaker at times. And so love is very much a choice. Jesus chose to love us at our worst. Chose. At our worst. And we must choose to love our spouses and others that way as well. With a I'm not going anywhere kind of love. And as Matt Chandler puts it, that's not rose petals and violin and candles being lit. And oh, honey, I'm not going anywhere. That's 
Something's on fire over here. A knife flung past your head. You're hunkered down. There's chaos everywhere. And you say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I've seen the ugly side of you and I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. That's love. That's love. It's where as you grow older together. And your body is wrecked by disease and memory loss. You can't control your bowels anymore. And your spouse stays in it. That's love for better or worse. In sickness and in health for richer or poorer. That's what cleaving is. You, you stay in it. And so for those who are married and those who hope to be someday, where are you at with this? Your marriage biblically. We even talked a little bit about this last week is a covenant, not a contract. Right? It's an irrevocable promise. And we are to keep covenant like Christ does. And he never leaves, he never quits, he never abandons, he never forsakes, he always forgives, he always offers grace. And to do this for us, what did he do? He climbed up on the cross. And in all of our faults and in all of our fusses and all of our squabbles and all of our fights, one of us has to climb up on the cross so that restoration and reconciliation has a chance. And so come hell or high water, better, worse, sickness, health, richer or poor, are you in? This is God's call. This is God's blueprint. And if you're not, like if you're not married, and as you're thinking about marriage and seeking to answer this question, there's any questions on this, whether you're going to be in it or whether you're not going to be in it, don't get married. This is God's call. This is God's blueprint. Leave your father and mother. Hold fast to your wife. And then third. And they shall become one flesh. And overlapping a little bit with last week, this has got both a literal sense and a metaphorical sense, a figurative sense. Literal, this is the marriage act. This is sex. Becoming one flesh. To be enjoyed and to be frequent in marriage. And it's not a thermostat. It doesn't set the temperature for your marriage, but it does kind of measure it if, if everybody's healthy and those sorts of things. But that's the little sense. We'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. But figuratively, figuratively, there's no longer two people. Now there's one. So there's no more like just thinking about me. Now it's us. You always think us. One guy puts it like this. I like it. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person. Right? All of you. With another person until death. Wayne Mack described it like this. God's intention is that when two people get married, they should share everything. Their body, their possessions, their insights, their ideas, their abilities, their problems, their successes, their sufferings, their failures, everything. 
They are a team, and whatever each of them does must be for the sake of the other person. Or at least it must not be to the detriment of the other person. Each person must be as concerned about the other person's needs as he is about his own. And so the idea here of one flesh is total intimacy, total unity. All right? But we need to be real clear that we don't misunderstand and think this means total uniformity or sameness as it relates to opinions or personalities or what sports team you pull for. All right? And especially it doesn't mean uniformity or sameness. Like biblically, it doesn't mean uniformity or sameness as it pertains to our roles as husbands or as wives in marriage. Now, before I even roll into those roles, I want to make sure that you understand this. When you look at Scripture, there is a sameness between the two genders as it relates to intelligence, importance, worth, value, how you bear the image of God. Okay, a sameness in all of that. But there is a distinction in roles that goes beyond biology. Okay, complete equality between men and women, but a God-designed distinction in roles that's not based, listen, not based on competencies or capabilities, but based upon God's design. And so listen to Ephesians 5 that John read earlier. I'm going to start reading a little bit before he did. I'll start reading in verse 15. Look carefully then. So this is, this is a call to all the church right here, talking about walking in love. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so notice here you've got mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. But then he specifically says, verse 21, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, his, is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present himself, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, and look, here, this is quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, we draw a picture with our marriages of this reality. However, summing it up, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so when I read the first couple of verses, 22 through 24, wives submit to your own husbands and then down to 24, uh, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Some of you are going, where's the exit? I need out of here. This guy, chauvinistic pig, what kind of a church have I walked into? And then others of you are like, sweet, he is about to tell my woman to shut up and obey me. This is where I wish the Bible allowed me to throat punch people. But it doesn't. So I will just say, if you're in either one of those extremes, you're both horribly, horribly wrong. God's word on marriage and gender roles is not sexist or totalitarian. It is also not gender leveling, unisex, whatever floats your boat type of attitude. It's a complementarian understanding of these gender roles, that they are to complement one another. So it's not patriarchal, it's not egalitarian, it is a complement of one another, that, that one is not better than the other, they have different roles. And men are to be servant leaders, protectors, providers, and women are to help accomplish these things and provide further nurture and care. And it's a sense of these things, because there's times when uh, disease or accidents or whatever renders someone physically or mentally incapable of being able to do these things, but that does not mean they are any less a man or a woman just because they can't. This is a disposition towards those things. All right, it's a sense of these things. And so let's dive in. Let's talk men real quick. We're going to go 30,000 feet. So God designed men with a sense of protection, provision, and servant leadership, all right? Using Ephesians 5 language, headship. But let's look at chapter 2 back in Genesis. We can kind of trace this even back there. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So chapter 2 of Genesis is like a commentary on the sixth day of creation out of chapter one it's like a magnifying glass on that six today so the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it and the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it you shall surely die then the lord god said it's not good that man should be alone i will make a helper fit for him now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man and then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we get our verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
And so what we see right here, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so right away, he puts the man in the garden to go to work. First thing God did is he gave the guy, he gave Adam a job. And man, unless you are physically unable to work a job, even if you've got a sugar mama who makes seven figures, you are to work. This is part of what God has given you. You are to work a job. Provision. All right, That's one role of a man. Part of that provision also is protection. Okay, Protection from Satan. Protection from sin. Protection from harm and harmers. And again, it's an inclination towards this. A paralyzed man may not be able to protect his wife physically in that way, but he's no less a man than someone who's not paralyzed. It's a disposition and an inclination towards this. And this lack of protection is actually the first sin in all the Bible. Not when they eat. That's, that's what's remembered when, when they take a bite of the fruit. But Adam is held responsible, though. He didn't take the bite first. And it's because of his lack of protection of his wife. He's called to protect her, provide for her, defend her. And then a snake comes in the garden, starts talking, and he keeps his mouth shut. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, I, I mess up all the time. I'm not, I'm not a saying in this. You can ask Sarah about the last week. She'll have plenty to fill you in on. All right? But if, I've said this before, if a snake starts talking to my wife, I'm getting in on that conversation. Right? I'm not just going to, oh, okay, go ahead. I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to talk. But this guy, this bozo, he just passively sat there and didn't do anything. And when we live that way, just like he did here, not protecting, not trying to protect, it goes bad, just like it did here. It leads to, to disaster when men do not seek to love and protect their wives. And when men, just overall, I mean, we, we know this, like in emergencies, women and children go first. Men stay behind and die. This, th that is... Like we know this in our hearts. This is how it works. This is a intrinsic to the way we've been wired. This is what it means to be a man. So there's protection. But he didn't. Sin entered the world. It broke everything. It fractured everything. It's what made everything marred, including marriage. It's why marriage is hard now. It's our sin that makes marriage hard. And so it's that that we have to war against. I mean, the greatest thing you can do to help your marriage is to not try to be the Holy Spirit and tell your spouse everything they need to work on to try to make your, you know, to be a better spouse. Try that and then come to me for counseling. But what you need to do to try, the best thing you can do for your marriage is to make war on yourself and to make war on your own sin and allow the Holy Spirit to tell you everything that you need to do to be a better spouse. 99% of the time, the biggest enemy in each of our marriages is ourself. Not our spouse. And so we need to make war on our sin. But getting back to men specifically, that's for husbands and wives. Getting back to men specifically here, protection, provision, and then servant leadership. All right, look back at Genesis 2 again, verse 15. You've got the man, he's been created uh, he's been put in the garden. Woman has not been created yet. All right. God puts man to work. And then God, verse 18, says, this isn't good. 
And I want you to see that. Ladies, you're about to get to amen real loud. When you look through Genesis 1, each of the days, day one, God says it's good. Day two, God says it's good. Day three, God says it's good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six, he gets halfway through. He's created man. He says, this isn't good. And then he creates woman. And chapter one, verse 31 says, it's very good. Now you can all go, yeah, there you go. But then, you know, God makes woman, and who speaks? The man does. Adam does. He names Eve. He claims her as his own. God's given him a leadership responsibility. Not some arrogant thing, but a servant leadership. Jesus is our example. No one questions Jesus' leadership. But he came to serve and not be served. That's our example. And so that's a man in, in, in the home. Servant leadership, provision, protection. And especially spiritually. Spiritually providing. Spiritually protecting. Spiritually leading. This is God's design. This is God's ideal. And again, where it, we've gone wrong, grace abounds. But this is the ideal that we seek. Men, this is the ideal that you are to pursue. Right, but what about wives? Again, complete sameness in value, worth, intelligence, importance, all of these things, but a distinction in roles that goes beyond biology. And so look at verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay? I will make a helper fit fit for him. Now, I want to be real clear on something. This Hebrew word for helper here, eber or ezer, does not in any way connote some sort of inferiority or someone who is subservient. Like, this is my helper. They're subservient to me. No, no, that's not the idea here. It's like with one of my kids when they cannot reach the cereal box and they ask, Dad, will you help me? Do I suddenly become inferior to them because I'm helping them. No. And to hammer that home further, listen to how God describes himself. Exodus verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 4. The God of my father was my help. Same Hebrew word. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 33, 7. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people with your hands. Contend for him and be a Help, same Hebrew, Hebrew word, against his adversaries. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, same word, and our shield. And so since God has you know, been called the helper, helper cannot in, you know, inherently mean inferior. And so a woman being a helper to the man cannot mean that the woman is inferior in any way whatsoever again if you think that this is where i wish the bible gave me a throat punch jesus even says that the holy spirit john chapter 14 is the helper right does anybody want to say that the holy spirit's inferior to them anybody want to blaspheme the holy spirit in here today 
What a helper is, is an equal partner who fills a different role. And so like in football, quarterbacks get all the hype. But who wins games? The linemen. The line is who wins a game. One position is not really more important than the other. They just have different roles, different positions. That's what helper means. And so in the home, men and women are partners. They are a team. But the husband's the team captain. That's the idea of headship. And team captains do not try to get their own way. They try to lead their team to success. And captains go down with the ship when it goes bad. They don't bail, they don't abandon, they stay in it. And again, our model for this, Ephesians 5, is Jesus. And how did Jesus show His love for us? How did He show His love for the church? He died. I mean, that, that's your role, man. You die to yourself daily and you live for your spouse and when you love and when you lead and when you serve your wife like that, okay, like Christ does the church, suddenly her submitting to you just became really, really easy. Well, it became much, much easier because you're loving her like Christ. But even if she doesn't live with respect towards you, man, you're still called to die for her daily. And ladies, even if your husband doesn't love you like Christ loves the church, you're still called to live with a disposition of submission and respect. A disposition, this doesn't mean doormat, but a disposition. And that's heavy. Because we want to hedge our bets a little bit. But this isn't a contract. This is a covenant. And it's God's design for your good and your joy and His glory. And somebody's like, Joe, I, I can't do that. I, I, I cannot, I will not do that. That sounds great in your little ivory tower of perfect conflict world, but you don't understand the absolute jerk that my husband is, and you don't understand the absolute snake that my wife is and how manipulative she is, how awful my husband is. Well, let's just say for a minute that you're right. You're 100% right. And they are 100% of the problem. You've just been Jesus in your marriage. And they are 100% of the problem. Which we'll admit, we know is not true, right? We know that's not true, but in our marriages, that's how we think. We, we don't admit it, but we believe it. They're the problem. I'm fine. They're the problem. We're all Pharisees in our marriages. God help us. But let's say they, they are 100% of the fault. And that you are 100% justified in being bitter towards them. All right, Being bitter towards your wife. Ladies, you're 100% justified in being bitter towards your husband. Filled with anger and outrage and hurt over what he's done. And there's no way that you can forgive them. They don't deserve it. They never even apologized. It's too much. The wrath and anger that you have against your spouse 
is not a raindrop in the ocean comparatively to the wrath that God has against you and your sin for what you did to Him. And what did He then do? By grace, because of His immeasurable love, He sent Jesus to the cross for you. Colossians 2.14, you've got a record of debt hung over your head. This debt that stood against you and your sin, and you are, you were 100% of the problem. And what did God do? He took that record of sin that made you a debtor to His wrath, and instead of holding it up as a warrant to send you to hell, He put it in the hands of Jesus and then nailed that to the cross. So whose sin? Yours, but whose hands? Jesus's. You sinned against Christ, yet Christ paid for it and has forgiven you. And if He has forgiven you, who does not, did not deserve it. How are we not to how are we not going to forgive our spouse? Even when they don't deserve it. Christ forgave us of everything. And I'm not saying sweep over issues, and I'm not saying this is going to be easy. Some of you have some issues and need some help, which is part of the reason we're doing this series. Some of you need to grab one of the books that's listed in your resources and work that with your, through with your spouse. and Have some honest questions. Just how's our marriage? Where are we at? I mean, just go old school SWOT analysis. What are our strengths and our weaknesses and our opportunities and our threats? Like, how are we doing in this? Some of you need to enlist the help of a pastor or a biblical marriage counselor for a little help. No shame in that. No shame in that. Just to get things kind of rolling in the right direction again. But if we will begin, and I'm going to give a quote here from John Piper, if we will begin to let the measure of God's grace towards, uh, let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Christ be the measure of grace you give towards your spouse, it will begin to remake radically your marriage and start lining you up again with God's blueprint, leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh, which is not just like a stale blueprint on a piece of paper, but is the pathway to joy and life and flourishing in your marriage. Whether you got married yesterday or 60 years ago, Let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Christ be the measure of your grace towards your spouse. This is God's blueprint. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to see and to recognize never is my spouse 100% of the problem. Never Are we to view them as our enemy, but our teammate? And Father, help us to understand that the path back to joy and 
I mean, you, you created marriage for your glory and our good, and, 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 and so often it goes from a beautiful wedding to a war so fast, just like it did in Genesis 3. But help us to see that the path back to joy in our marriages is Christ. And that as He has been towards us, we are to be towards our spouse. And Father, help us to know that no matter what baggage we've got, and we all have some, and no matter what skeletons are in our closet, and no matter how just banged up our marriage may be, or how much one of the spouses wants out of it, just as there's no sinner who is too far gone to be redeemed by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus, there is no marriage that is too far gone that it cannot be redeemed by the grace of God. And so help us to follow your blueprint and give us grace and give us mercy when we err in that blueprint and help us as spouses to give grace and mercy when the other errs in that blueprint. Make us just wonderful repenters and forgivers. Sanctify us. In a lot of ways, you're one of your biggest laboratories for sanctification is our marriage. So work on us, God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.